Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our assistant pastor, Jeff Buck. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 1 and in verses 10 through 24. Galatians is, is such a wonderful book. It is what one writer calls the Magna Carta of Christian faith. It is a, a letter designed to maintain and enforce the liberty that comes through faith in Christ. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there are all too many people, things, habits, and so on that are out there to enslave you. But the person that can stay free spiritually, that is a, a blessed person. So Paul in Galatians is pretty torqued about uh, false teaching, as he talked in the first nine verses, that are not really a, a, a true gospel, but like a, an extra gospel. A, a, you know, there's always people that will add rules to you. I remember as a young Christian getting ragged on so often because of long hair. If you can picture me with really long hair. And I, I just remember thinking, the Christianity that I'm learning is about the heart. It's really not about the love beads I'm wearing or about the long hair. And uh, when I became a pastor, all of that left anyway. But in uh, Galatians 1, we have a really, really fine passage that I haven't bothered to title. It's just a really great series of scriptures. When we get to verses 11 and 12, I'm going to dive off because of my respect for the Apostle Paul. And I'm going to brag about him uh, in, in, I hope, a godly way a little bit. Because uh, Paul became my hero as a new Christian because I lost all my other heroes. But I fell in love with this, this Jewish man who mined out in his 13 books amazing truths of scripture, including what he himself will call revelation. And I'm going to take you through seven revelations, just as a sidebar on verses 11, 12, that are unique to Paul in the New Testament. A revelation is not something you learn. It's something that you see. It's something that just appears as spiritual reality in front of you. And this is one of the reasons why I love Paul, because he was a revelatory kind of guy. But let's begin in verse 10, a, a really, really fun verse to look at. After he talks about the weird gospels that are happening, he says these words in verse 10, in, in referencing what he's just said. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? Nothing works Worse than trying to please people. It just, it just don't work. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Paul is saying, in my apostolic role, in my planting and overseeing churches, in my bringing the truth of Christ to this Mediterranean basin, I could never do it if I was trying to please man at the same time. You cannot please God and work to please man at the same time. Now, I've, I learned a long time ago, if you're overly concerned about your reputation, if you really have to have people like you, that's another form of bondage. And for me, I grew up, very concerned about what people thought about me, very concerned about how I looked, and so on. When I read these words of Paul, I thought, yeah, I'm one of these kind of people that likes the approval of man. Especially getting saved as a teenager in high school, in a high school of 2,800 kids, which meant lots of opinions, you know, lots of jostling in the halls, and I'm this brand new Christian. How do I act, and what do I do? And I'd always worried about what people thought. In my senior year... 
the Lord just began delivering me from the fear of man. And I began to wear a cross, carry a big black Bible. And I found my popularity index rose. And I would assume it's simply because if you stand firm for what you believe, people respect you. And then they come to approve of you. But if, if you are bound to the fear of people, you have a harder time pleasing God. And again, he says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So it doesn't mean that as a Christian, you walk around being irritable with body odor, you know, trying, trying to be difficult. It simply means that you don't have to have any approval except God. And when you come to that point, and the only way you get there is through your ongoing relationship with God, having that fear pulled off you layer by layer, what you find is the less I fear, the more I serve. The less I am concerned about what you think of me, the more Radical is my service. And what's really interesting, see here where it says, am I now seeking the approval of man? The Greek word is patho. And every place else that I can think of, that, that word is not translated uh, the same as here, not seeking, but it's the word persuade. See, there's the trap. If I try to persuade you that I'm cool, or if I try to persuade you to like me, or I try to persuade you that I'm spiritual, even if I'm successful, I can never stop that process. <laughs> I got to keep convincing you. When you get out of that business, when you quit trying to prove yourself, and you, you just give all of that to God. I remember as a, as a college freshman being in a navigator's Bible study. And I really appreciate the ministry of navigators in college. And I remember this little book I was filling out at my desk one day. And it was talking about to new Christians, the things that you needed to surrender to the Lord. Now, sometimes you surrender stuff to God and then he gives it back. Sometimes he doesn't, but there was this long list of things. And have you surrendered this, 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 and I was able to check every box. But when it came to the box on reputation, I couldn't because I really cared what people thought. So it then offered um, a prayer that you could pray to just surrender that to God, your reputation. And so, you know, I, I, I can't recite the prayer, but I prayed it with sincerity. Now, whenever you pray a prayer like that, Generally speaking, you'll soon be tested. And so the next week, uh, one of the deans of the college, uh, the university at Central Missouri, uh, I was called into the, one of the dean's offices. So, you know, I had a clean conscience. I didn't know I was going to be in any trouble. I just walked in. I sat down and, and the, the dean said to me, now you're a Christian, I understand. I said, yes, sir. He said, now you're familiar with Billy Graham. Yes, sir. Well, he said, and this, this is back in the days when the universities had, had a presence in Christianity. At least this secular university had a lot of Christian professors. And so he said, well, we're one, we want to bring a Billy Graham film to this town. I forget which one it was, but he said, now, we want to advertise it to our students. And so here's what we want you to do. We want you to write a letter of invitation to every student in every dormitory at Central Missouri State University. And I want you to sign your name. And then we're going to place it in every dormitory mailbox on campus. Now I thought, no, wait a minute. You want me to put my name on an invitation to a Billy Graham event, and it's going to go to every dormitory, two copies, because there's two people in each room, and you want me to put my name on that. Now, you laugh, <laughs> but I thought, I, I didn't know what to think. How could this happen to me? And so the dean's looking at me, and he had said, well, you're a Christian, right? And so, you know, 
I signed my name. I can still remember how I did it so neatly and so on. And, and with trembling hands, I gave it back to him. And sure enough, Jeffrey Buck was a, a Billy Graham fan to every person on campus. But it wasn't so much that it did anything for the film, I doubt, but it did something for me. And that's when I took my first step out into, I'm going to be a servant of Christ. And, in, and I, I hope you're okay with that. But if you're not, I'm okay with the fact that you're not okay with me. And in your life, you cannot please man. You got you to gotta try to please God. Now, yes, if you're married, 1 Corinthians says a, a married man is to please his husband, please his wife. You know, there's, there's fences on that. But the fear of man, Proverbs 29, 25, brings a snare. The fear of man stops us from witnessing. It stops us from believing. It stops us from praying. It stops us from depending on God for that miracle that we really need. The fear of man. It was one of the greatest traps that was ever in my life. And what that fear of man produces is something called self-centeredness and self-consciousness. And so I am, I am bringing an application because Paul isn't, didn't saying all the things that I, I just said, but the approval of man, it is something that you crave automatically less and less as you walk with Christ. Why? Because you're getting your approval from him every day. My quiet time this morning with the Lord, Psalm 95 and Exodus uh, 17 it was so rich. And it's, it's like the Lord feeding me and encouraging me. And that's just worth everything. And the rest of the day, having to put up with all of you, it, it's easier because of the approval. So if, that's, if that registers with you, Ask the Lord about that. Pray about that. Pray about that fear of man. And strive to be a servant of Christ. I'm just going to read it again. Am I now seeking the approval of man or the approval of God? In what I'm saying, Paul says, am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So being a servant of Christ will take you directions that at times people would think you're crazy. Why are you doing that? Why are you giving up this? Why are you starting that? Why are you in Bible study on a Tuesday night? What is your problem? It is worth all of that to not have to have the approval of man and even better to know the approval and the favor of your God. Then he says in verse 11, for I would have you know brothers. Now he's again, he's been talking about false teaching, false doctrine. Now he's going to lay out some rationale as to why he is reliable to share with them the true gospel. I would have you know brothers that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. He said, I didn't sit down and think this up. I didn't think up the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I didn't sit, sit around thinking of baptism and Lord's Supper. I mean, I, this isn't my idea. He says in verse 12, and you know, we're going to focus on this just for a few minutes. For I did not receive it from any man, this, this gospel, nor was I taught it. But I, what's the next word? I received it through a what? A revelation of Jesus Christ. It's one of the wonderful things about Paul. From the moment of his conversion, his supernatural conversion in Acts chapter 9, when he gets smoked by the Lord Jesus to the ground, and he's blind, and three days later, you know, he receives his sight and all that. He lived a supernatural life. He lived a difficult life. He was warned by Jesus at his conversion. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. But I want you to notice that word revelation. Now I'm going to go through here just for a moment. I'm not going to turn to all of them. But this Paul that people today say, oh, he's a misogynist and he's anti-gay and he's, he's just old fashioned and all of that stuff. This man 
lived a revelatory life with God. That word revelation, you will recognize the Greek apocalypsis or apocalypse or apocalyptic. The word actually means to reveal clearly, to, to make it, uh, according to one um, uh, dictionary, to make something nakedly clear. It's to open the curtain and you see what's behind door number two. So this first thing that we see, and hopefully I'll put it up on the screen as we go, the whole gospel of grace was a revelation to Paul. He didn't go to seminary. He didn't go up to Jerusalem. The Lord showed him by a revelation, by an unveiling, the gospel of grace. I think Martin Luther had a similar experience. As a, as a monk, he was trying to live the Christian life, and he would beat himself and starve himself and do all these different things. And one day, he read Romans 1.16 about faith and believing and forgiveness. And in that moment, he saw it. He, he just saw it. He saw the truth that it was Jesus plus nothing. It was Jesus plus faith only that could, and it changed his life. Revelation, a, a supernatural unveiling of truth that is not the, the cumulative result of study. It is God opening something to you. I had a, 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 now I would say probably this is not a revelation, but I remember as a young man starting to form my conclusions about Christianity and, and about church. You know, I grew up in the Episcopal church and it was uh, a wonderful church. And my father was a, was a godly uh, father and a speaker and my priest, but it was a little bit stodgy for me. It was kind of like everybody came and sat in the pew and we, we didn't really talk to each other. And, uh, and it was just kind of a solitary experience. But as a young Christian, I began venturing into another, another churches. And so I went to the First Baptist Church downtown in my town. And I found out that they talked from the Bible, a long sermon, and they gave altar calls. Now, I had never seen an altar call. If you want to receive Christ as your savior, come down here and we're going to lead you in a prayer. I had no idea such things existed. And so I was on the edge of my seat. I was like going nuts. Is anybody going to come forward? And nobody did. I was like really disappointed. But I came back the next week, sat in the same spot. And, uh, and I noticed that, you know, this is a, churches with pews. Now when people, when, it's not so much like when you have chairs, but when you have pews, people love to spread out. So they sit down and they put a Bible on this side and a coat on that side and they get lots of room. Lots of room, like, like you're doing here. Yeah. <laughs> Look at you, got two seats blocked off right there. But anyway, but what I noticed was, you know, no one talked to each other. There was no like sense of like community and it was, um, I thought, well, this is the same as what I, what I felt, you know, growing up. And as I was sitting there, what, looking at these people and kind of just observing this and just trying to grow as, I wasn't, I wasn't there as a critic. I was there to, to learn. And as I looked at the backs of all these heads, I had this mental image. I'm not saying it was a vision. I'm not saying it came from heaven. I'm just saying that what happened was I saw the backs of all these heads. And then it was like a cartoon or, or like a, a, an image. And every one of those heads turned into a little house, a little house of its own with like smoke going up, you know, and, and like in a neighborhood where there's all these houses, but no one's, they're not connected, you know, they're not neighbors in the way and so I'm trying to think about that. And then in my mind's eye, I see, uh, do you know what a honeysuckle vine looks like? I used to, be, as a kid, grub honeysuckle for $1.50 an hour. And it's just these long vines that grow in, on the Maryland uh, in the hills. And I saw these things kind of grow up and, and entwined all these different little separate houses together and kind of brought them together. And I thought, that's the weirdest daydream but I saw something, and that was that God wanted all these separate individuals to be 
bound together. And as I sat there, the word family was impressed in my mind and heart. And from that moment, I saw that the local church is to be a family. It's not to be just a bunch of separate individuals that come, say, hey, and then go home. And it was all through that, I won't call it a revelation, but through that, whatever that experience was. And I saw it. And so then I began calling everybody brother and sister. And that was when I first became a hugger. That's the first, when I first, you know, I was afraid of people before, and now I would strangle them. But, that, but back to the gospel of grace, it was a revelation. Another revelation is, is Romans 11.25. I'm not going to turn there. But remember in Romans 11.25, Paul uses the Greek word mysterion, from which we get the word mystery. And he says, I tell you a mystery, that there is a partial hardening of the Jewish people until the day of a full revelation of their Messiah to them. I don't know if you've ever read that passage, but he said, it's a mystery that the Lord showed me until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Remember that passage? And then all Israel will be saved. So in a future time, after the last Gentile Christian comes in and the church is removed in the rapture, all Israel in some way, we're going to come to faith. But it, see, it was a mystery that the Lord showed Paul. Then number three, 1 Corinthians 11.23. Would you just turn there just for a moment? Familiar words. 1 Corinthians 11.23. I think we heard them last Sunday from our pastor. 1 Corinthians 11.23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Now, see, when he says that, what he's saying is, I have a direct understanding, a direct revelation, a direct impartation from Christ about communion. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and said, this is my body, this is my blood. The Lord showed him how important that was. He received that. And that's the wonderful thing about the Christian life. We're, I'm never going to receive on the level that Paul did. I'm not going to receive mysteries and revelations like he did. But every time I open the Bible, there is a potential little revelation waiting to happen. There's some kind of truth, some kind of uh, meaning that's going to come. And uh, I love 1 Corinthians 11:23. I received it from the Lord. A fourth is in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10 where Paul has a vision of heaven. And you remember, I taught about this a few weeks ago here, second Corinthians 12, one through 10. And he says, I know a man in Christ, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but he went to paradise, heard words that cannot be uttered and saw things which could not be seen. That's Paul. And he says, Visions and revelations in the first verse. Now it's to visions and revelations. And then he talks about heaven. He had a revelation of heaven. How many of you would have liked to have had lunch with the apostle Paul? And, and heard about these things. Ephesians chapter three is a fifth revelation. He uses again, the word mystery. He says, you'll understand in verse six, three, six, you'll understand my understanding of the mystery. And he says, it's that the Jew and Gentile are fellow members of the body of Christ. And the Jews and Gentiles are to be one. That was something Paul saw. No one else saw that before he did or like he did. He saw that it was not going to be a Jewish church. It's not going to be a Gentile church. It was going to be us all together. Paul saw that. It was a mystery that the Lord revealed to him. A sixth revelation let me show it to you. Colossians 1.27. This one is so good. And the first time I read this and understood this, it flipped me out. It's, it's just wonderful. The whole passage is beautiful. But in Colossians 1.27, 
To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this. What does it say? Mystery. It's a mystery. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. A mystery. The mystery would be that the Messiah would come and live in you. That flipped me out. You're telling me that Jesus, whom I've heard about all my life, Paul says the mystery is Christ will live in you. See, as a young pagan sitting in a Bible study, when the speaker talked about Jesus living in my heart, I thought, I'm into that. That sounds wonderful. That's not religion. That's not tradition. And he said, here's the mystery. Messiah will live in you. That's the best part of Christianity is not only can we we be forgiven and cleansed and so on, but his son through the spirit lives inside me. That was a mystery that our beloved Paul thought. And the finally seventh revelation, one of the best first Thessalonians four, 13 to 18. Are you putting up the uh, slides as we go? I hope. I'm at your mercy because I, I can't, I don't have eyes in the back of my head. But the, but the seventh revelation was the rapture of the church. Remember 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17? Is it there? He says, I declare to you a mystery. The day will come when the trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ will rise first. And the church will be airlifted to heaven. Paul, how did Paul know that? Where was that, where was that written? Where could he have learned that in a class? The Lord showed him. The Lord showed him that one day the church would be. And then byproduct is in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. After the Thessalonians misunderstand, and some people say, well, the rapture's already occurred. You got left. He says, no, that's not true. And he, uh, he unfolds the whole meaning of the word antichrist. And that a day will come and a, and a future uh, Wrath will come upon the earth when a, a man, the Antichrist, uh, rises up, takes over the earth, and then has to be uh, removed by Christ. But all that complicated stuff, how did Paul know that? By revelation. So I guess what I'm saying is, if there was anybody, back to Galatians 1, if there's anybody that should be listened to, If there's anybody that should be trusted about spiritual things, it's not the Swami down the street or, or the person is looking into the crystal ball or whatever. It's someone like Paul who had these remarkable experiences with God. Remarkable. Then he goes on in, in verse 13 and he's talking about himself. Now look, look what he says in verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, that you all, you all know me by reputation, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Paul was one angry person. When he saw the traditions and the beliefs of Judaism challenged by this new rabbi, he was absolutely Livid. And where it says there, I persecuted the church violently and tried to destroy it, the Greek simply says he wasted it. He wasted it. He laid waste to the church. That violent, it was just like blowing everything out of the way. You know, I had in my college career, which I just mentioned, I had three professors that were really, really angry. And, and um, unkind to me. And I could never figure out w- why, what I had done. And it was interesting, they had this simmering anger, like Paul did, against the church. And you know what I found out? Two of them were former pastors. And out of the ministry, and one of them was a pastor's kid. And they had that anger. 
that snide, snarky, how could you believe that kind of thing? Paul was angry. And have you ever known anybody angry with the church? Disappointed, not sure why something happened. And it, it can be such a hard thing to deal with. Paul was the first. He was so angry with the church. And so verse 14, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. And notice the two things he says about himself. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now notice he says, I was extremely zealous. It's interesting in Greek, there's no separate word for zealous and jealous. Same word, zelotes. The same word can be translated zealous or jealous. And it's only the context that tells you. Paul was zealous in his anger because he was jealous for what he thought was an offense to God. That, that jealousy for God's glory and anger. I mean, he, he really, in one sense, had a, had a good heart. He wanted God to be honored and praised. But what it really felt down to was, and the traditions. He wanted those traditions kept. Now, wait a minute. Jesus, you're gonna do, you would do away with phylacteries? You're going to do away with Sabbaths? You're going to do away with uh, memorizing the 613 laws? It was those traditions. Maybe I'll just meddle for a moment, but isn't it interesting how people love to guard traditions? Traditions. No, I'll get in trouble. I'm going to go on. <laughs> no, we'll tell you one story that about traditions. It was interesting. When Denise and I, my wife Denise, we were living in Warrensburg, Missouri, where uh, I had to sign the paper and, and out myself as a Christian and all that. And I began to feel like, Denise, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, I began to feel like the Lord was going to move us on to another place. And so, I was so, so crazy. Um, and so, on Wednesday night, we had Bible study at our church, Harvest Fellowship Church. You'll, you can see it is still there in Warrensburg, Missouri. Thursday night, I found myself driving 30 miles to the next town, Sedalia, and starting a Bible study, kind of to see if that maybe was a place to go. And then on Friday night, I would drive 30 miles the other direction in toward Kansas City to a place called Lee's Summit and start a Bible study there. And so I was just crazy. I was, I was doing Bible study, Bible study, Bible study. But at the Thursday night Bible study in Sedalia, Missouri, my dad's friend, an Episcopal priest, had a beautiful church there, and they had a completely empty house next to the church where they could do church events. And so I asked the priest, I'm just seeking God here. I want to see if, if something can happen with young people in this city. Could we use, on Thursday nights, this house next to the, to the parish church could I use it for a Bible study? And so the, the priest looked at me and said, well, we'll have to sit in front of the vestry. You ever heard of a vestry? Vestry is the, the leadership in Episcopal church. So we go in in front of the vestry and like a, a young, happy, crazy kind of guy, I shared my vision. What, what might happen with the youth of Sedalia? And uh, they discussed it politely a moment and then they voted no. As we walked out, one of the guys came up beside me and said, we would like to keep our church just as it is. That was called being slapped in the face by tradition. And it's interesting, the other Bible study dried up and our next church was in toward Kansas City. But I never forgot that. The only thing that stopped me from having a public place rather than the basement of the editor of the newspaper there, who's a Christian, was tradition. We like our church just how it is. So I'm still bitter about it. <laughs> tradition. But I like verse 15. I love the word but. I love this conjunction but where he says but. He said I was zealous. I was tradition bound, but, 
And notice the four things he's going to credit God with. When he who had set me apart before I was born, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. It doesn't say to me in the original. It says he was pleased to reveal his son in me. Paul was to be a living example of Jesus for his entire life because Jesus was in him. He set me apart before I was born, called me by his grace, revealed his son in me in order that I might preach him among whom? The Gentiles. Wait, 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 wait. The Jewish rabbi of rabbis, the man who had climbed the, 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 the corporate ladder of, of Jewish rabbinical life and schooling, and Jesus sets him apart from his mother's womb, calls him by his grace, and where's he going to send him? To the Gentiles. If I were Paul, I would have said, God, you can't do that. What do I know about Gentiles? I can't spell Gentile. I'm not a Gentile. And this is just one of the great things that is so true of the Lord is he will take the unqualified and happily use them. (laughs) He will take the ones that it makes no sense for you to be involved in that or you to be involved in that. And it just shows up his power. I wonder if it's true also of you, Christian, that you have been set apart before you were born. I wonder if there's a plan for you who have been called by his grace, as Paul clearly recognized. And God wants to reveal his son in and through you. The dignity that that gives men and women who know Christ. But Paul is this example of a guy who, who, who was taught by God. Hey, I called you before you ever had a chance to qualify for the calling. I, I remember as a young Christian, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 just would, would ring through my mind, especially Ephesians 2, 10, which says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Do you remember the rest? Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When I realized in my life that there were footprints already laid out for me, when I realized that God had a plan for my life, I was thrilled with that. I thought if I could just figure out where to put my feet, if I could just figure out what direction to go, God will help me choose a wife and he'll help me choose where I live and help me to accept the pastoral calling and all of that. I love the fact that Paul saw that he was, he was born for what he did. He was created for what he was called to do. That's why he was so good at it. God had called him and equipped him and created him. But again, that's also true of you. You've been called to live a separate life, a sanctified life. Maybe not a public life. Maybe not a life that everybody knows your name but called by God. I used to be a backpacker. That was when I had good knees. And I remember my favorite backpacking guy was Colin Fletcher, who used to live in Carmel Valley. He died actually out in Carmel Valley. But he wanted to be the first one in 1964 to walk the internal length of the Grand Canyon. And so he decided, I'm going to do that. And as far as he knew, no one had ever walked the Grand Canyon. And so he went and he sat down with the, the greatest living legend, legend at that time who knew the most about the Grand Canyon. And he, and he laid out this plan to this guy named Harvey. And he said, I want to I walk the Grand Canyon, not at the rim, but I mean down, down at the bottom where it's hottest. And, and the guy said, well, never been done. And he said, there's a, a one mile stretch in the middle where the only way you could pass is completely unstable. No one's ever done it because the minute you step out into that mile uh, cliff, everything just dislodges, 
goes down the Colorado River, and you're lucky if you don't go with it. But Fletcher was not going to be denied, so I forget if he went to the North Rim or South Rim. And it took him two months. But one month in, thinking about this, this cliff, and he's waiting to see it. One day he comes, and, and there is that unstable section. And he, it just looks so scary. And he, and he kept telling himself, now, people have walked everywhere to this point. But now, I'm on my own. I, there's, there's, there's. And so he, you know, took a nice long break, had lunch or whatever. And then he decides, okay, I'm going to do it. And so he starts, he walks out. You can read his book. It's called The Man Who Walked Through Time, Colin Fletcher. And he gets out in the middle, and the strangest thing happens. There's this really, really unstable section. But he sees a set of footprints show up right where it's the least stable. And he thought, no, this is not, this isn't possible. I'm not the first one here. I'm not alone. And so what he does is he starts stepping into the places where there's footprints because that's solid enough to where the, the ground hasn't crumbled away. And he gets across by putting his feet in those footsteps and he makes it does the rest of the month. And then he goes back to this guy. Harvey said, wait, you lied to me. You said no one had ever walked that segment. And he said this, he said, I was so worried about you. Basically saying, you're such a rookie. I was so worried about you. I went down there and did it myself to make sure you could do it. Now, my first thought would have been, you cheater. (laughs) But my second thought was, you made the way for me. See, that's the way I view life. It's the the footsteps are already there in every day. All I got to do is figure out, even though these are dangerous times, where do I step? And that's what I love about the Apostle Paul. He, he had this sense of divine destiny, and he was glad to serve Christ. And so he says in verse 16, he was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into where? Arabia. He went out in the desert. We don't know exactly where, except the uh, Arabia would have been southeast from Damascus, where he had met Christ. And then he says, I returned again to Damascus. But the very first thing Paul did was he didn't, he didn't go talk to any other Christian. He went out in the desert and spent time with God. That's where some of these revelations just came is he got out the Old Testament scrolls and he began to see Christ in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. And he, he began to form his theology and, and, and through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, he began to develop this gospel of grace all by himself, out alone in the desert. And it says in verse uh, 18, then after three years... Now, I don't know if that was three years as a Christian, three years after he went to Arabia. We don't know. But here he is, a fairly young Christian. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas or Peter, and I remained with him 15 days. Now, notice the precision of that. 15 days. You get to know somebody pretty good in 15 days. But there was no meeting of the apostles He says in verse 19, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So there was a complete lack of the people who were in Christ before him teaching him. He had to learn this stuff himself. And he's trying to establish his credentials as someone to preach this newfound gospel by saying, I have experienced God. And I'm just here sharing what's come out of that. And he has to say in verse 20, in what I'm writing to you before God, I'm not lying. (laughs) Now, anytime somebody has to say, I'm not lying, 
It means that they feel like they're under pressure from someone who thinks that they are. He's saying, I really got this gospel from God. I really did. I really got a revelation of this gospel from God. And saying by implication, this is why you can listen to me. What would it have been like to have that kind of life where, at least at times, there was this direct revelatory stream from heaven? Well, that's why we have the New Testament. That's why we have God's word. And, you know, you may never have any kind of, you know, Pauline-like revelation or whatever, but every time you open the book and the Holy Spirit breathes on it with you, there you are receiving your own personal revelation, your own personal words from God. I really got this gospel from God. I really did. And so then, finally, in 21 to 24, after this period of time of instruction, however long it lasted, he begins to go out and tell other people about Christ. In 21... I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. You can read about that in Acts 13 and Acts 14. He says, but he says, this is interesting. 22, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. The people around Jerusalem had no idea who I was. They didn't know me by face. Paul could have walked into any of the early congregations around Jerusalem, sat down and people looked at him and had no idea who he was. A guy that was receiving constant direct, not constant, but revelation from God. But in, in the Jewish community around Jerusalem, no one had any idea who he was. Except they were hearing it said, this guy, Paul, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. It would be really interesting if you were having an early church acts kind of service. Guy walks in, and you don't know who he is. And then somebody says, that's Paul. That's Saul who became Paul. He likes to kill people. But, but no one would have recognized him. It's really interesting. Some of the greatest people that have ever lived are so unknown. Maybe just to a small. He went into apostolic ministry, not recognized by anybody. And every place that Paul went and was starting churches, as he went into what's now modern day Turkey, he would walk into a city. No one would know who he was. And he would start all over again, sharing the revelation, stirring up people to receive Christ, getting beat up. And having to run to the next city. What a life. You know, what a life. But Paul would, would say to you, do you believe this gospel is from God? Do you believe this? Does the gospel of grace, does my gospel to which I've shared, hold authority and supremacy in your life? If Paul were here, he would say, how strong is the word of God in your life? Because, I mean, he would be saying, I, I sweat and bled and worked for this. Paul would say, do you know that everything is by grace? The grace of God, the kindness of God, the ability of God, the touch of God. That's what it, Pastor Chuck Smith was all about this, this thing of grace. Paul would say, believe me, believe what I'm saying. I've had a, I've had a relationship with God. If you were here tonight, he'd also say, quit worrying about pleasing men. Don't be a jerk. Don't walk around trying to make people antagonized. But he would say, worry less about people and worry more about God. And remember how he said there, he separated me from my mother's womb. 
That's the part of Christianity that gets a lot of us uncomfortable when we talk about separation, being separated from the world. And we always say, yeah, we're going to be we're going to be in the world, but not of the world, but I'm still going to watch TV 35 hours a week and I'm, you know, still going to have to have all the latest clothes and I'm still going to be in debt to my eyeballs and all those things. And Paul would simply say, you can be separated to God and live a far higher and deeper life than just the American, the American way. So our bare bones worship team is going to come back and sing another couple of songs, but not after I pray over you that what you see and hear in the life of Paul, Remember how he said, Christ is revealed in me. Far less than Jesus, but life is, that that Paul has been such an example in life to me. Willing to suffer, willing to travel, willing to go into situations culturally unknown to him. Willing to hang out with Gentiles when he was one of the, the great Jews of that day. Just willing for anything to share the gospel. There's a ring and there's a circle of people around you that are not available to me. And you have that opportunity to let Christ shine inside and through you. You know, I was gone for, after having grown up in Monterey, gone for 40 years and I made it back 40 years gone about 11 years ago. I love Monterey, but this place is so lost and so dark and so post-Christian. But you're here and I'm here. And there's a lot of other fine Christians and fine churches here. What might God want to do here? Could there be maybe revival in Monterey? Could there be like there has been in churches in times past? My last church was a church at its height of 30,000 people. It was just crazy. People would just come and they would get, they would get saved before you know, the altar call was even given. I don't know if the Lord would ever do anything like that here, but I know the, God's not dead. And I know if Paul were here, he'd be evangelizing and witnessing and sharing. So, let me pray. Lord, for me, I believe in the gospel that Paul has brought. I believe in pleasing God, not pleasing man. I thank you for the the seven revelations that you gave Paul. I thank you especially for the gospel of grace. Lord, I thank you that you walked those last steps for me, just like that man did in the Grand Canyon. There's never a step that I walk that you're not there and that you won't pioneer it for me. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.